Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. It's Lori and we have an all-Canadian episode today. I was going to sing a part of O Canada in French because that is what I learned growing up. Um, But it's funny because I'm pretty sure like most songs that I sing now, I don't even make up words. I make up noises. So they're probably not even real French words and I would do the country an injustice. So I will keep quiet. Um, I'll keep quiet from singing. And I'm going to try to keep this intro short because it's a really exciting episode. Today is for all the pelvic pain nerds out there. But of course, when we talk about strategies for pelvic pelvic pain, it really applies to so many other things. But I'm bringing you this brilliant discussion that I just had with pelvic floor physio Katie Kelly on the concepts of graded motor imagery for pelvic pain. Now, for those of you who haven't heard or haven't read the GMI handbook by Lorimer Mosley, David Butler, Tim Beams, and Thomas Giles, you need to read it. It is absolutely brilliant. So GMI stands for graded motor imagery. When you read it, because you will, um, you'll also note there's a big lack of information on how to apply these really cool concepts for pain, but to pelvic pain, because it is a little bit of a different area. We have to do a lot of thinking of our own to try to tie all of this together in this field. But hello, in comes Katie to save us today. She discusses these concepts of GMI and how we might apply them to pelvic pain, including the research that she has been working on that is almost published. I cannot wait. So today's episode ties in very nicely to older episodes as well, particularly graded exposure, which sort of follows GMI, and that's with Sandy Hilton and Bronnie Lennox-Thompson, so go back and listen to those, and previous episodes with Jilly Bond. Now, for those of you who don't know who this mastermind is today, Katie Kelly is a pelvic floor physio from New Brunswick, Canada. Woohoo! She graduated from the MSC PT program. PT is physio in Canada and America, but in Australia is personal training. Anyway, so she graduated from the program at Dalhousie University in 2010 and has been working with pelvic floor patients for over a decade. She opened her private physiotherapy practice in 2017 and co-opened Reconnect Health Center, a women's focused multidisciplinary health clinic in June 2020. Katie's a guest lecturer at Dal University's School of Physiotherapy, where she lectures on the topics of pregnancy and pelvic floor physio. She's an active contributing author to the Canadian Physiotherapy Association's Women's Health Division newsletter. She has a passion for cesarean section rehabilitation education, recently presented on this topic for the CPA, and teaches a professional course on the subject. She's developed a relationship with Mount Allison University's Sexual Health Lab, where she contributes to research involving genital pain conditions. She recently launched the Volver Image Collection, a resource of Volver images used in research and education. Now, we talk about this Volver Image Collection in here. She also will give you a really cool code to access this at a discounted price. You can find Katie in the community supporting the role of physiotherapy in pelvic health conditions or on social media advocating for pelvic floor physio awareness. She has the most brilliant Instagram account. I'm obsessed with it. I wish that I was her sometimes. Um, It's one of the only few that I really enjoy. 
All the links are going to be provided in the show notes so you can find her and everything that we are talking about. And again, listen up and check the show notes for the discount code for the Volver Image Collection, which is available through Embodia. Enjoy, everyone. I hope you love this episode as much as I loved speaking with her. Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We're going to get into it because, oh, I just feel like there's so much I want to ask you and there's so much I want to talk about. And I feel like it'll be confusing for me, <laughs> potentially confusing. <laughs> I'm sure it won't be. I'm sure it will be. Oh my goodness. So we're going to talk about your research. Um, but I also, yeah, I don't even, I don't even know where to start because I want to talk about graded motor imagery because then your research has started going into explicit motor imagery. Yes. Okay. Look, talk to me about what graded motor imagery is and how we're, how you're going to start intertwining this with the pelvic area. Sure. Well, you come from, you're living, you come from Canada. Hello, fellow Canadian. But you are living in the land of Australia, which is like the Noi group land. So really, I'm not the expert to be explaining graded motor imagery. But as far as I've been instructed, graded motor imagery is a series of kind of top-down focused methods to address maladaptive neuroplastic changes. The first of which is an implicit um, motor imagery type task, which is the left, classically, the left-right differentiation or the lateralization that they use. And the examples that they use of that are having people look at images of potentially painful body parts in a variety of positions, and they have to discern whether the body part is in, like showing the left side or the right side or bending and flexing towards the left or the right. Um, So that is implicit motor imagery, which I think when all this began, they were under the assumption um, kind of address more of the premotor cortex in the brain. And then it was a way for them to kind of fly under the radar and get a potentially very sensitized body to start addressing a painful body part. So graded motor imagery is typically used in patients who even imagining movements would hurt. And if even imagining a movement hurts, then how do you get patients to do movement at all, right? So by quickly almost guessing if something was left or right, there was maybe less activation of the primary motor cortex. So that's what the implicit motor imagery portion was. Explicit motor imagery was then the second part of the task in GMI, which was where you would ask the participant to look at the image and then to envision themselves from first person perspective, actually performing this activity or this position that would be painful for them. And that was kind of deemed to activate more of um, the primary motor cortex. Although there's some argument now about whether to what degree both of those tasks might activate both of those cortices. 
Um, but that's what explicit motor imagery is. And then the third task would be mirror work, which I think might be one of the more popular ones that people are aware of, where you could place a hand or a foot inside a mirror box or alongside a mirror, and the patient or participant would look in the mirror at an unaffected limb, and the image would look like their affected limb. And then with the unaffected limb, they could do all of these movements that would potentially cause pain in the affected limb, but their brain would be looking at the reflection. And therefore, to them, it would look like they're moving you know, a painful body part into positions um, that had been causing them pain. So that's what graded motor imagery is. <laughs> and I thought way back in 2016 that this would be a fantastic idea <laughs> for vaginas. <laughs> So did but. I, but then that's where my brain decided it would be too hard to do. And before you go on, how would you do the laterality with the vagina? So those are excellent questions, Lori, <laughs> that were also posed to me. <laughs> Which is one of the reasons why we started with explicit motor imagery, because that seemed to be one that uh, was a little bit more feasible. So that's what our research looked at. But in answer to your question, because I love talking about all of the stuff around all of this, in answer to your question, the laterality, so what I have toyed with is potentially taking a vulvar image and either tilting the whole image kind of 45 to 90 degrees to the left or right in either direction and having people try to discern left or right tilt. So that's what I'm kind of like now, I, I mean, I ran the study a while ago, but now it's kind of what I'm looking at. But I was also very lucky enough to get a little bit of a chit chat with Tim Beans, who is one of the authors of the Graded Motor Imagery Handbook. And he suggested that the whole point of the laterality is, as we just said, it's for implicit motor imagery, which is just a way to almost get someone to look at a painful body part without having to really conceptualize the motor component too much. So his brilliant idea was maybe you just do images of things that look vulvar-like, like Georgia O'Keeffe paintings or pieces of fruit, and then they could just discern whether it's fruit or vulva. And so we're kind of thinking about ways in order to, to kind of sneak in, as they say, under the radar so that they're not really thinking about the motor component, but maybe um, that might be another, another method to kind of access that point. But the argument becomes, honestly, is what we do with pelvic floor GMI at all? Because it, GMI really is the structure of those three types of treatments in that particular order. And um, there's some argument as well that there's no motor component to vaginal pain or bladder pain. So I really prefer to study kind of genital pelvic pain and penetration disorders. That's where my focus really lies, but our mutual friend Julie Bond studies um, and practices a lot with bladder pain. And you don't have the pelvic floor that's necessarily like in the bladder. So that's where the argument becomes, maybe this isn't quite a motor component. Maybe it's interoception, maybe it's proprioception. So I've recently stopped calling this graded motor imagery, what I'm doing with the pelvic floor. And I don't know what to call it, <laughs> but Julie and I are trying to figure out what to call it. And we'll get back to you on a name. <laughs> graded imagery? Like, do you just I, take I know. the motor out? Maybe, oh, but there's also, bad. for me, there's pelvic floor component as well, right? Yeah. When it comes to dyspareunia or vaginismus. So I don't know, but I think that's the, uh, that's the discussion right now is what should we be calling it? But it's nice because it does allow people to start incorporating all of these bigger, larger ideas into 
how you know people respond to images, the psychology behind it, the anxiety behind it, um, the preconceived pain notions behind it. Um, but it's very interesting, or at least I find it's interesting. So you mentioned that you did a study before. Can you? Yeah. I know that it's not published yet. Um, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. So we had a group of women who were requested. So we had them set up at computers. We asked them to look at um, a variety of images. And these women were either a control group who didn't have any chronic pain at all, or they were deemed as self-reported penetration pain. So we didn't include true vulvodynia patients. Um, it was really someone had to have pain with sex. That's how they were incorporated into the pain group. And we had them look at 33 images of uh, 11 different categories. So the categories were things like a pelvis sitting on a soft surface, like a sofa um, or a soft padded chair, sitting on a firm surface, riding exercise bikes. And then we had them look at penetration type images as well. So we had tampon insertion. We had implied sexual intercourse. So these would be images where you could tell that the couple were having penetrative intercourse, but you couldn't see genitals. And then we had another group of explicit sexual intercourse where you could see vaginal penetration happening. And then we had them look at implied gynecological photos. So you could tell that you know, a pap exam or a pelvic exam was happening but no genitals. And then we had them look at explicit genital exams or vulvar vaginal exams. And the reason for like the reasoning behind us choosing to do these implied versus explicit images was really just functional in nature because it's quite difficult to find good images of genitals. <laughs> that was one of the struggles that I really encountered when trying to select images for this study. And also just from a practicality standpoint where some women might really struggle to look at genital-based images. We wanted to know if they could still disertain the information from an implied genital penetration image. So we had them look at those images. And then after each picture, we had them answer, we had them um, uh, to rank answer three questions. And we asked them, how anxious are you looking at this image? Um, Imagine you're the woman in the image, how anxious would you feel performing this activity? And imagine you're the woman in the image, what would you, how would you rate your perceived pain? So I was mostly interested in the pain one, but I've come to appreciate the importance of the anxiety questions as well. So that's what we had them do. And then our results were kind of what you would expect them to believe according to some of the other GMI research that we've seen in that the women who had ranked themselves and the reported penetration pain had significantly higher scores. Like we found quite large effect sizes on um, almost all of the images, um, almost all the categories across all three of the questions. So some of the things that I found really interesting were that um, the women were able to look at the implied images and grasp the information from it in a like there was no significant difference between the implied and in the graphic images that we had showed them, which for practicality purposes, I think is really, really useful. Um, and I don't think that concept has really ever come up in graded motor imagery work before because it's always been a hand or a foot. Like <laughs> you could just show a hand or a foot. It's not difficult to get those pictures. 
So I was kind of excited to see that because I think it does open up the treatment to perhaps women who aren't quite ready to look at explicit use of genitals. And then the other thing that was kind of cool that came out of the research was for the anticipated anxiety, like how anxious would you picture yourself in this situation if you were the woman in this picture, that across the board in the pain and in the no pain categories, the scores were quite high for a gynecological exam. So indicative that basically most women <laughs> have some experiencing some sort of anxiety when it comes to um, you know, gynecological examinations. So I thought it might be practical in that population as well. Mm, I don't know how to frame this question either, but I'm, a foot in a hand we see all the time. Women don't often, and probably most of the time, don't actually see their vulva and especially inside of the vagina. I mean, they're not doing their own speculum exams when they have them anyway. So how does not having that habitual um, sight of that area influence any way that you're doing the study or does it? I think that's a really good question. So even in my clinical practice, I encounter what I have a hard time differentiating between someone just having not been exposed to vulvar imagery and there being taboo around that and women not necessarily being encouraged to learn about their pelvic floor or their genitals um, versus because women can't see it because they don't necessarily see other women's pelvic floor and because I cannot demonstrate just very poor mental representation of that body part leading to potentially poor proprioception and poor motor learning, right? So if you're looking at a hand, even if someone has never moved their hand before, you can demonstrate a hand movement and they can analyze that and learn from watching. We don't have that with the pelvic floor. So I do encounter kind of barriers to GMI in the genital world where we don't encounter that problem when it comes to feet and hands and low back, right? So I think that that's really interesting. And I think that's what's made me appreciate this study more because, you know, I'm not classically a researcher. I'm a clinician who just had a question. I was very, very lucky that Mount Allison Sexual Health Lab would let me poke my head in there and annoy them with this question. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think it, it's, it's, it's a problem when it comes to that body part that we just have poor motor learning and poor capabilities of visualization and mental representation. So that's why I'm a firm supporter of sexual health classes <laughs> at an early age. So is this where the idea of developing a data bank came from? Yeah, so I have, well, it should come out next week, I'm hoping, um, is where I had had so much <laughs> trouble finding images on the internet because that's where I sourced our images from. And it was funny, um, Bonnie Fisher, who was the research coordinator at Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton's uh, laboratory said, take the safety off of your internet search. And I was like, what? <laughs> She's like, there's a little thing you can click on and it removes the safety. And then I Googled like tampon images and it, I did, I was not ready for all of the images that came up after that. But my big pet peeve was 
a lot of the images that we had to use of vulvas in our study were from the porn industry. So they were thin, white, hairless, young women. And I was kind of ticked off because I didn't think that really was a great example of the variety that we would see with people who experience genital pain. And so after I had finished that study, I did go on to um, just recently create the vulvar image collection. So we have 300 images of <laughs> vulvas undergoing um, digital exam, speculum exam. I've got pictures of dilator insertion. Um, we've got a woman with lichen sclerosis that volunteered. We have differences in ages and race and skin tone. So I was really happy to see that start to grow. And those are the images that I'm now using in my clinical practice when I'm working with my patients. So are they online or printed? They're online. You can access them at Embodia Academy, which is a Canadian kind of online physiotherapy learning website. Um, and I'll give you a promo code at the end of our interview for <laughs> your listeners if they would like to purchase them. And so they're me, downloadable. And for you, be, yes, you can have them be, too. It'd be amazing. So can you can you give me an example of how you've used them in your clinical practice? Yeah, so I find there's kind of two two broad categories of what I see. Sometimes I see a patient who starts very typical of what you would expect, um, a vestibulodynia patient, someone who's got dyspareunia, and you are able to do an internal exam on them. And kind of the more you go through your treatment, you start to get the feeling that something is just a little off and you realize that maybe there is anxiety. There's something that, um, kind of, I always say it's like my little flag goes off because if I, when I give my patients internal stretches for their homework, I'll often ask them, are you interested in using your own finger or would you prefer a dilator? And that's always my test. If someone's like, oh no, I could never put my own finger inside my vagina to do stretches. Um, then I start kind of digging further a little bit to kind of figure out what their relationship around, you know, maybe their self genital image might be, what their upbringing was with um, healthy sexual relationships. And for them, I'll say, are you interested in learning about the genitals a little bit more and having some exposure to that. So that's kind of one case that I will see. And then the other case that I find this is incredibly useful for are the people that you might not really be able to start with an internal exam at all. So these would be your more severe um, painful penetration type patients. I find that um, I will do this. I, I will, I'm gonna say, I never do this on a first exam. I never do this on a first meeting with a patient. But I do build up to doing visual exposures with some of my sexual assault survivors because I find it can take quite a while to work towards um, doing an internal exam with them. And sometimes just exposure to visual images is a better way to kind of get into the pelvic floor with them. But I have over time realized, because I think when I started this, my perception of using images was kind of like, I don't want to say flippant, but very much like, hey, it's just a picture. What harm could it do? Right. And I've really come to learn over the last number of years that this is treatment and this is aggressive treatment for some women. And I have to go through a whole consent process just to show them a picture of a vulva, because for some women that can increase their pain levels, that can increase their anxiety. Um, and it really would be re-traumatizing them. So I think that because it's a picture, we just think, hey, it's a picture. What harm could a picture do? But really, it can be an aggressive form of treatment in some people. 
Um, and sometimes you have to start with just drawing. So sometimes the images that I have are not appropriate at all. You need to start with like that pelvic model that you keep on your desk, or you need to start with just some sketch drawings <laughs> on a pen with pen and paper because they're really not ready to be exposed to that. And I find those are the ones that I think Jillie describes it as they get their hackles up. Like you ask them like, hey, could you look at an image of a vulva and you just see their demeanor change, like their shoulders rise and they kind of curl into the fetal position a little bit more, or you might see some motor autonomic changes. They might start sweating, they might start flushing. And I think that's another one of those signs that you, you should actively be monitoring for as practitioners that, hey, there's something kind of centrally that's changed here. And um, I think we need to address from a top-down perspective more from just a peripheral tissue perspective. A very quick interruption. I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who has supported the Pelvic Health Podcast, especially those who have become patrons at any point along this journey. If you are looking at becoming a patron, you can head to the Podbean app or the Podbean website to search for the Pelvic Health Podcast, and there is a little red button to become a patron. Um, And in there, I have been, I think I've published about 34 kind of special episodes on a variety of things some papers that I find really interesting that I've gone through that I have read some case studies some sneak peeks on abstracts that I have presented and just a collection of my thoughts as my way of saying thank you Um, and now I will let you continue listening so so we've got the vulvar images we'll be able to um, access which is brilliant what are you going to do now with all the stuff that you've learned after creating that and doing some of that research? This will be nice to talk about because I'm not sure yet because I, I, as I said, I do have a newfound appreciation for how important kind of these baseline measurements are. I've um, recently been looking at kind of how uh, the predictive processing pain theory and how our thoughts and beliefs and what we predict our body to do. And when something doesn't meet those predictions, how that affects pain. Can you explain that a little that. bit more? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm really not the person that should be explaining this. Oh, you are uh, because you've explained things so well to me. So even though we're talking about pain today, we've had outside conversations about these very similar concepts, but with regards to prolapse. So we'll stick to pain today, but explain some of that. So predictive processing, I've recently taken a course um, with the instructor, Mick Thacker, who is kind of this well-known phenom in the, in the pain world and Laura Rathburn, and they are both lovely people. And this was for me, I, pain is my thing. I love studying pain. These are my favorite patients to treat. And this was just such a hard course for me because I felt like I understood pain okay. So I really found it changed my perspective on pain. And um, I guess the big shift for me was more how the inputs and outputs, because I think we break things down very classically. It's we get a, um, an input for pain, goes up the nervous system into the spinal cord, and we get an output. And then with central sensitization, I think a lot of us have learned that the volume can be turned up on that input and that the ability to modulate kind of descending control of of pain signals, we can adapt that with our neuroplastic training abilities. And predictive processing just makes that relationship a bit more bi-directional. 
So the input that we're receiving from the spinal cord could even be giving input back to the peripheral nerve that what our preconceived notions are, are formulating in our brain can affect the, the central nervous system. And how one pain output almost serves to go back into our input again. So it's just to think about it a bit more fluidly and not so much, this is the input. You know, if we do graded motor imagery, it's gonna affect our ability to have our neural matrix and our neural tags change, which it does in my opinion, I think it does, but that there's, there's more to it than that, I think. So it's opened my brain up to kind of the predictions that people are telling themselves and to really address those. And so when I go back to my research and our, the third question that we had, I had asked was how would you perceive yourself? It wasn't even how much pain do you think it was? How, what's your perception of pain in this situation? I think that that's actually a smarter question than I realized that we had asked because I was kind of annoyed that I asked that question in the beginning, but now I'm kind of happy I asked that question. So moving forward, I think I would still ask, what are your perceptions of pain? And then I would love to do classically like, like an explicit motor imagery um, treatment method on them. The biggest barrier that I'm encountering right now in trying to plan out the methods for how to do that would be phenotyping the types of pain patients that we have. So generally speaking, we're seeing in the literature right now, the general terminology, well, the, it's newer terminology of genital pelvic pain and penetration disorder, replacing the two categories that we had previously of vulvodynia and vaginismus. So we're kind of, anyone that's having difficulty with penetration is now lumped under this GPPPD category. As but which, I, as a, which DSM did that? Five? Oh, uh, five or they passed five. Um, no, I'm like, Oh, where are we now? Okay. One of them, you know, recent ish. But I struggle with that as a clinician because clinically I see a difference between how a vestibulodynia patient interacts with me and how they respond to an exam versus what we have previously called vaginismus. And I'm trying to find a way because I think I'm really curious if they would respond differently to an explicit motor imagery task. I think that they would, because I find that people who have never been able to engage in intercourse, and it might not even be because of pain. So sometimes our vaginismus patients, they just have this guarding and this reflex that does not allow for penetration. And they might not even know yet if they have pain or not. Find they respond differently to treatment than someone who has mild discomfort with vaginal penetration. And so I need to find a way to differentiate those types of categories because some people feel that it's very spectrum-like and you know what it is when you're trying to differentiate, you know, participant groups is that you need to have some clear definitions of who's going to be in which group. And that's where I'm encountering. <laughs> My brain hasn't thought all of that out yet, how we're going to do that. But I do think that um, vaginit, like the classically what we've termed vaginismus patients, um, have a greater barrier to viewing genitals potentially than some of my more mild dyspareunia cases. But in any event, I would love to have them do kind of a classical EMI exposure and have them choose some of the categories that they might find challenging. Normally what I do with my patients clinically right now is I have them kind of pick two or three activities or images um, or positions that they feel that would be painful, but that they can 
just imagine themselves doing. So I had them sit in my office and they close their eyes and I have them envision themselves from the first person um, performing an activity, whether it is inserting a tampon or maybe just touching their vulva or maybe it is, you know, penis vagina intercourse. Um, and to picture them doing that easily without pain. And if they can just do it, <laughs> then that's kind of what I start from. And I get them to repeat that three to five times. And I get them to do that a few times a day until that becomes really easy. And then we move on to the next one. And then the idea after would be to move them to actual graded exposure of, of the activity, right? Or some sort of physical work. But that's kind of what I'm envisioning right now. Although I'm open to interpretation and suggestions from anyone. We, um, I don't think we mentioned it at the beginning when we were talking about the original concept of GMI and the implicit and the explicit and then the mirror and then graded exposure. Where does that fit in? Is that like so graded exposure? Yeah. So graded exposure is when you get out of the imagery world and when you actually start exposing someone to an activity. Good question. Thank you for bringing that up. So it would be, um, you know, in my most severe patients, I guess sometimes I just start with them sitting in a chair and can you relax your pelvic floor and have me touch your knee, right? Can you relax your pelvic floor and um, over your underwear, can we do like a perineal exam? Um, and then you just keep exposing them to, to kind of closer and closer to their goal activity. So it might be being able to undergo um, a pelvic floor physiotherapy exam um, until they can do it. And I think that the the biggest barrier that I encountered to the actual graded exposure part is that so many people just feel they should be able to do things, right? Like they just feel like they should be able to have sex, like easy peasy, lemon squeezy, right? And I'm like, no, there's so many steps that we can break that up into, right? Like, can you, um, can you undergo external perineal palpation on my chair? Can you undergo external perineal palpation on my table? At home, can you do it in your living room if it's too uncomfortable to do it in the bedroom? Like, do you know what I mean? Like there's, you've got, and that's what graded motor imagery, it's the same thing. One's just a visual representation, a me visual mental representation. And then greater exposure is just, it's the real thing. But unfortunately, true graded exposure can't be done with everyone. And I think that that comes to a shock to a lot of patients um, and maybe practitioners too, that sometimes you just can't touch people. And so we have to find, different ways to gradually expose someone to an activity, whether that is the actual activity, or if that is just the mental representation of that activity. I don't know if you remember or if you listened. Um, we did a graded exposure episode with Sandy Hilton and Bronnie Lennox Thompson a while ago, always needing an update. Um, but if anybody is wanting to deep delve into that a little bit deeper, you can um, definitely go check that episode out. I always feel I like do remember that episode. Oh, do you? Oh. I, I, I listened to it numerous times in relation to this. <laughs> I still go back and listen to these things all the time. Um, there's just so many brilliant minds. Um, so I always feel like I jump around a lot because then I get really excited and then I skip things. Um, so uh, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about with regards to GMI or the EMI? Is there a question that you have in particular, Lori? No, but so I was like, oh, did we, because sometimes I get excited and I jump, I keep oh, jumping. Oh, maybe mirror work. Y yes. Oh, <laughs> yes. What a kick. I do have a question. Um, okay. So I, I was asking about, can you do left from right with, because mm -hmm. I remember reading GMI going, 
how do I do this to the pelvic floor? How do I separate? Do I just take a mirror or so not even laterality with the mirror? I'm like, do I put the mirror in between the labia so that they can only see one labia? So then, and then how do you make it move? So like, how do you do mirror work? Yeah. So, and I think that's the argument why some people are saying we can't call this GMI is because we're not doing laterality. We can do EMI, but then we can't really do mirror work the same either. However, I do still use a mirror. And I think Caroline Van Dyken was one of the people that influenced me to do this. Um, I get consent to do parts of my exam with just the partic- like the patient looking in the mirror during their exam. And I think a lot of practitioners have come to do this now. Um, because from a learning perspective, sometimes that's an easy, like if you're a visual learner, again, we just go back to women not having a good mental representation of how their pelvic floor works. And I find that it's just another feedback mechanism. So they have my tactile sensation of my finger vaginally or their finger vaginally, they can learn from feedback that way. But visual learning is just another way to do that. So I'll get them to hold the mirror and Sometimes I'll just get them to see what a Kegel looks like and what a, like an eccentric lengthening looks like, because I find that that's a really big concept for someone to learn. I think so many women, if they've heard about pelvic floor training at all, they've heard Kegel. So they understand that contraction, but they not, might not understand that when they think they're relaxed, they're actually still holding tone and there might be this whole other layer of lengthening. So I think when they can see that it's quite helpful. The other thing that I use the mirror for is, um, to kind of help, how am I going to put this? To kind of help um, build a better representation of their pain. Because I do find that when women have pain with intercourse, first of all, they have a very difficult time, some of them have a very difficult time describing where the pain is. So I've often heard like it's deep inside my vagina, but then you do a cotton swab or a Q-tip test and it's their vestibule, right? And they just have a poor perception of where inside and outside is. So I will actually take a Q-tip or do you guys call them Q-tips there? Cotton swabs, you know? Yeah. It's like, the, yeah. Well, <laughs> I think Canadian, a, you know the, I know. I don't know if other people, I mean, the Q-tip <laughs> test is like a, a well-known test. A little, um, yeah. I'm like sure they have another swab. name. Yeah. A little cotton swab and um, I'll have them just learn where their pain is because I find that can be very empowering for them. And then the other thing I'll do is sometimes they just assume that their pain is everywhere on the vestibule but maybe it's only on a small section of the left side. So I'll go through the Q-tip test with them and show them like, hey, look, like you're negative here. We can touch all here. You don't have any sensitivity here. It's this small spot right here that's giving you the trouble, right? Now I'm cautious with that a little bit because it does kind of go back to biomechanical again. (laughs) But at the same point, sometimes you have to meet a patient where they are and sometimes just decreasing the central nervous system sensitivity and activity around how large their pain might be when they can see visually that's a smaller area. I find that can be a little bit of a calming activity for them. So I use it in that, in that kind of that way, as opposed to the classic kind of mirror image of a limb and do movements. I haven't figured out how to do like the left labia versus the right labia yet. I'm not sure that it can be done. I know that's where my mind went. I was like, oh, I don't think that would work. So I'm not sure what to do. And so therefore I'll just wait until someone smarter than me can do all the research in this area. So thanks. Thanks for doing all this. (laughs) Um, So are you going to keep doing research? Yes. Oh, You gave us some ideas of where you'd like to go and hopefully, you know, no one will steal them, right? people. <laughs> well, if someone wants to steal them, please 
<laughs> um, am I going to keep doing research? I'm not enrolled in a PhD or anything, although some people keep asking me to do so. My husband might divorce me if I do that, though. <laughs> so we'll see. But you do it part time and you have plenty of time. It's just like, a well, maybe thing. that might be the way to do it, right? So even for this research, I've been working on like this initial paper for about five years now, and it's just taken me a long time. I have a huge appreciation for people who do research as a profession because, oh my gosh, it's just so hard and frustrating and tedious. But yeah, I think that we're, we're planning to do a phase two of this. I just don't know that it will be a PhD for me or not. <laughs> Either way, I'm so thankful for you working in this area um, and still being able to apply all of this from a clinical sense and turn it around so that people understand it from a clinical sense. And that's where I think being in the like the student researcher section and starting to learn about academia, I didn't realize that so many of the researchers were not clinicians or they were clinicians for maybe a year where I think mm -hmm. that's where we get so many of the questions from. And then that's what makes us go, well, then how do I help people with this rather than yeah. here's what I found. And you know what, Laura, it's hard for clinicians to get into research too, because you need to have a research ethics board to approve things and time. you need to have some, you need to have time. You need to have someone that's willing to show you the ropes because it is a steep learning curve, learning how to write a scientific paper. Um, so it's really hard. I really do wish that we saw more collaboration between clinicians and researchers, because I think that that would be a wonderful way to to kind of move forward as far as it's well, a big push at UQ, at least here of um, having those two things combined. I think the more we read scientific literature, I think it's easier for us if you're going to go into research to know how things are put together. But it is so hard because unless you have some sort of subscription or affiliation, then you have no access to the to the literature because we know or everyone should know that you can't just read the abstract. Yeah. But you, you know what? I have contact. I reach out to a lot of authors. I always look and see who the primary author is or who the who the author of contact is. And sometimes you hear back and sometimes you don't. But usually more often than not, you know, most researchers are really excited that you want their paper and that <laughs> they're like, someone wants to read my research. So I find more often than not, they're happy to share their research with you. But you're right. It's just getting a hold of them. Because what do they say? How many years behind so did have they say? <laughs> I think you need to clear your throat, Lori. <laughs> yeah, there's something, something stuck in there. Yeah, it's too bad. Yep. Um, but yeah, they say like, what is it like um, between research and clinical practice? Like there's so many years apart with, with, with I remember hearing are. like 15 to 20, whether yeah, or not I think that's real, but I mean, you see how long it takes. Like you've been doing this work that, you know, if you could just talk to your best friend, who's also a clinician, she could have started to implement this five years ago when you started. Whereas now- right it's taken you five years. It's then going through the process of trying to get it peer reviewed and put out there and, you know, the fun parts of that. So yeah. then in the end, it, it is almost like it's almost 10 years to then get it out there and for some people to access it. So yeah, but I don't, I don't know. Well, that's why I hope again with the podcast that maybe people will get some information. And I hope people are excited about this topic because I think, well, I said, I was going to say, I think it's kind of new, but it's not. If we look back at, the, I should have mentioned David Butler and Lorimer Mosley, who really are the people who came up with this brilliant idea. That research was published in like late 90s, early 2000s. Like it's not really new research anymore. I'm just getting old. And to think like we have clinicians, we have new graduating students that might not even have a great understanding of central sensitization. 
like that's really discouraging for me when I see that that's happening in some programs still, because that should be, in my opinion, a major part of physiotherapy school. And I know there's a lot to learn in physiotherapy school. And I know that you have post-grad courses for a reason. But at the same time, I think if you look at the amount of literature that we have about the importance of central sensitization, that whole concept, I don't care which theory you, you know, subscribe to, that's fine. But just to have a concept and an awareness that that's happening and um, that it's an important part of your practice, equally important to manual skills, equally important to exercise prescription that we're learning kind of that biopsychosocial framework to work within. I think that that's a very important and for me, very exciting. Like I'm very curious about that type of research that's being done. It's very exciting. And I just hope that other medical professionals also have that within their education at some point. And rather than it being like, you know, optional as well, yeah. like it's not optional. If you're working with pain, if you are working in the field of gynecology, this is, I think, really important stuff that you should know. And we know that research is a way to reach those populations of medical professionals as a physiotherapist, but just like physios, the time sometimes that people have, I think, to stay up to date with research might be a little bit tricky, which again, um, I'm hoping that doing things like this and sharing your information will be able to get it out there, except it's just not enough time. Like, again, I could have you talk for eight hours. So I'm going to, in the show notes, I'm going to put some of the links that you've talked about, um, and your Instagram handle, because I love, I love your Instagram. Um, it's so good. And you, and well, I guess, so I had decided long ago not to do TikTok or even have TikTok because I've got a 10 and a 13 year old that I'm trying to keep off of that. Um, but you have a TikTok, but from what I can see, you put that onto your Instagram. Is that right? Yeah. TikTok is a whole other world. I can yeah. tell you. TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. I don't do Twitter. Facebook. Well, Ooh. I'm kind of, I'm on Twitter. I know you've seen me on Twitter, but I don't, I don't actually know how to put a tweet on Twitter. <laughs> and you can but do TikTok you, and videos. Come on. So it's it's a great academic field. Yeah, it's such a good, like, it that's, is. a lot of academics, I think, are on Twitter. I um, can read it. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and it's really short. It. <laughs> Any other avenues that people can find you or reach you? I'll put your website uh, Facebook, on Facebook. Yeah, yeah you can find yeah. me on my Facebook as well. I'm at www.katiekellypt.ca and you can find my clinic information where Reconnect Health in Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada. I'll give you the promo code if you like for Ooh. the Vulvar Image Collection. Yes, please. Your listeners. It? Yep. So it's Pelvic Health Podcast 25. It's a 25% discount. And I have that open until August 1st because I really didn't know when you were going to get this podcast. <laughs> so I'll just leave it open till then. Unless oh. it's after that, then I'll extend it. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I'll, again, I'll put out all the information that people can contact you, but I love having the time with you and you sharing this cool area with everyone. Well, thank you for being interested in it and for giving me. I'm so grateful for this platform to be able to talk about it. 